So Dave Colley's on with us now. And, and Dave, uh, before we talk about the podcast, give us your background. Um, uh, exactly what is it that you do out west? Yeah, I'm a radio journalist. Uh, I've been working in the field since 2003. Uh, my entire career has been in the Salt Lake City market. Uh, started at a clear channel station back before they became iHeart. I uh, started working with KSL News Radio in 2012. I uh, was an afternoon news producer there for about six years and then started this podcast project uh, kind of while doing my day job, juggling that uh, until it became uh, so unwieldy that they had to put me on this full time. So we're seeing this more and more now, uh, radio folks uh, deciding either to take their on-air uh, content and turn it into a podcast or, or even go off and, and create some new content. Um, why do you think that's happening in the radio industry? I mean, I think we're chasing our listeners, right? Uh, for me, as a radio producer uh, at a heritage radio station, we knew we had a strong local audience that uh, connected with our on-air personalities. We had a, a great field of reporters, but we also had opportunities to tell stories, and we just couldn't do that in the constraints of our on-air shows. So as we're looking at uh, the rise of podcasting, people adopting kind of uh, these long-form stories, I, I, you know, I looked at um, this particular story that became the focus of my podcast and thought, if there's a way to take our existing radio audience and draw them into the podcasting space to engage them with a story that they might already know a little bit about, but to get uh, much deeper with this topic, it just seemed to go hand in hand with what we are already doing. So instead of being, you know, uh, a move away from radio to podcasting, I view it as very much a, a all of the above strategy. So why did you decide that that was something that you wanted to do? I mean, uh, being on the radio uh, is a great thing. It could also uh, it, could, it could be, you know, a comfortable thing when you know exactly what you're going to do all the time. Why did you decide that you wanted to be one of the folks that kind of veered off into the podcast space? Uh, <laughs> I still, I still have a little hesitation about it, to be honest with you, uh, because I did give up, uh, being on air daily, which I loved to do this. Um, you know, it really came down to my personal engagement with the story. I covered this as a journalist. I always had questions that were unanswered through my own coverage. And so there was personal curiosity that came into play. I wanted to be able to spend the time myself to dig in for these answers, to go long form with uh, the people who are involved with this story and really put them on the spot to answer questions. And I figured if it's something I'm passionate, uh, passionate about, if I can translate that passion into the podcast in a way that uh, other people who feel the same way will join with me, then that just makes sense. So why do you believe the true crime um, uh, category has become so popular. It, I, I believe it could be you know one of the most popular categories for listeners now in podcasting. Yeah, yeah it's kind of hard when uh, you look at the, the landscape and you think, oh, we're going to add another true crime podcast to the, <laughs> to the right. mix here, right? Um, but for me, it really came down to, you know, yes, this is a genre that we know people connect with. There is this element of, of I think, mystery and... Um, I don't want to say voyeurism, but there's definitely kind of a peek behind the curtain uh, kind of appeal to these kinds of stories that uh, you don't get from maybe traditional, you know, daily news coverage that uh, piques that interest a little bit. Um, I also think for podcasting, when you're when you're talking about true crime, a lot of times you're talking about personalities. You're getting to know uh, suspects, victims, investigators, and 
presenting them as full, well-rounded people is something that is just so difficult to do in a 30-second soundbite. But if I can spend 30 minutes or 60 minutes engaging you week after week with uh, you know these people's own stories, their own lives, I think it connects a little more strongly in, in a sense that uh, you start to see elements of these people's struggles and their experiences in, in your own life. So give us the give us the background on this story that you decided to turn into a podcast. I, I believe it dates back to nineteen ninety nine. Is that correct? Uh, no, two thousand nine. Okay. So we're actually uh, we're about nine years out from this case. And just to set the scene for you, uh, what happened was this mother of two boys, Susan Powell, disappeared on uh, December seventh of two thousand nine. Uh, in the podcast, we do go back into the late nineties okay. uh, to kind of to kind of get into. So I think that's probably what you're getting at the yep. uh, the background of the suspect here. Uh, we spend a, a couple episodes really diving back to his childhood to see the family dynamics of his uh, of his father, who was um, let's just say not a very nice person, and how that kind of influenced his treatment of his, uh, his wife. When Susan disappeared, the circumstances were questionable, to say the least. Uh, Josh Powell claimed that he had been out on a camping trip in the desert in the middle of a snowstorm in sub-freezing temperatures with his sons, who at the time were uh, four years old and two years old. So uh, very atypical parenting decision there. <laughs> Take your kids out in that situation. And um, the criminal investigation basically followed Josh from that point until uh, February of 2012. After he moved to Washington State, he, uh, under pressure from investigators, uh, killed himself and his boys and basically took any chance of finding out uh, what he had done to the grave with him. And to this day, Susan's body has never been found and nobody ever faced criminal charges for what we presumed was uh, her murder. So... Um... How do you start your research? Do you, I know you had covered it, but do you, do you go back to old tapes at the radio station? Do you go back to old newspapers? And then do you set out an outline of how you want to lay this podcast out? What's, what's the research like when you first decide, okay, I'm, I'm ditching the radio mic and I'm, I'm going to really get into this? Yeah, it was nuts. Uh, in 2013, the police department basically declared the case cold. They said, we've run out of leads. And they took a, a, a somewhat unusual step in they released their entire case file. Now, certain pieces of it were redacted, uh, but, I mean, we obtained gigabytes and gigabytes of reports, uh, witness interview transcripts, warrants, uh, photos of crime scenes, all this kind of stuff. And so for me, it became a process of at first categorizing all this information. What do we have? And then in reviewing tens of thousands of pages, looking for uh, any references to existing audiovisual materials. So we noticed that uh, our suspect in this case, Josh Powell, had recorded uh, audio journals that the police had seized using a search warrant, and those had never been made public. So we used public record uh, laws in the state of Utah to go back to the police and say, hey, you already gave us this case file, but we want more. Give us this. Give us that. And so uh, some of the stuff had actually been sent up to Washington State since that's where part of our story played out. I physically traveled to Washington. Um, but, you know, really to the heart of your question, a lot of it was uh, I would go home after producing the afternoon news. I would sit down with PDFs and I would spend two or three hours uh, reviewing, uh, taking notes and then basically outlining the timeline of the case 
and figuring out where do we have audio that will help carry an episode through and where are those breaks uh, in the story where you can maybe stop and say, okay, well, you know, this is a natural story that's self-contained in one hour of podcast. It's part of a larger narrative, but it's a good place to to stop. And so that's essentially what we did. We outlined our, our basic approach to the larger story. Uh, the back end of it is a little fuzzy just because we're still getting new information as we're producing our episodes. But uh, that was kind of the task of organizing the whole thing. So uh, how did you decide or where did you decide when you sat down and said, okay, Here's where we're going to start this, this at point in time, you know, this, this, yeah. take us through that. It came, it came together very late. Uh, what happened was I had identified that our suspect, Josh Powell, had had an ex-girlfriend before he married his wife who became the victim in our story. And that woman had never been fully identified, first and last name, and had never spoken publicly. And I thought, if I could find this woman, she certainly must have a story to tell. So uh, we released our first episode on November 14th. I did not find this woman until late summer of 2018. So it was, it was just a, a few months before. And I basically had already written out where the story was going to start. It was going to be um, Josh and Susan Powell's early marriage. And then all of a sudden, I managed to identify this woman, and uh, she agreed to do an interview. Interview was amazing. The stuff that she shared um, just kind of blew my mind, and I realized I have to start over, in a sense, and really start the narrative with her. Uh, so quickly shuffled what we had and uh, refocused my first episode to uh, kind of tell her story and uh, draw in a lot of the background elements about who Josh Powell was, his troubled upbringing, and allow Catherine, this ex-girlfriend, to to fill in the rest of that story. And it just worked out so well because then after she leaves the scene and you get Josh and Susan together, there are parallels between those two relationships that uh, really speak to who Josh was, how he treated women, uh, the way he controlled romantic interests. And so it was, it was a pretty late ad uh, to get that into our story. So do you determine how many episodes there are going to be? I, I, I know you have several in the can now and the story is ongoing. Uh, uh, how many do you think you're going to produce or do you just figure, okay, we're going to keep doing this and keep doing this until I achieve my goal with this? Yeah, the story definitely has a beginning and an end point. Um, but, of course, it continues on with the work that we're doing. So I, I have an idea. Okay. Um, my manager is... <laughs> <laughs> reluctant to let me say what that is. Uh, suffice it to say, it, it will be longer than I think uh, a lot of these true crime series are. Uh, and if we continue to develop new leads or new information through our investigation, we're leaving it open-ended. So, uh, you know, we we have a game plan. It's not small, and it could go even longer. How helpful have investigators been to you? Uh, you know... <laughs> Good and bad. Uh, we sat down with the primary police department in this case very early on and explained to them what our approach was, what our goal was. And, of course, everybody wants to compare it to, oh, you're trying to do serial. And, uh, you know, so in, in a certain sense, I think they had an idea of where we were going, but maybe not uh, specifically the, the breadth or depth of what we hoped to do. Um, 
there are some materials that uh, we sought through public records laws that they refused to offer or provide. Um, and attorneys got involved. And, uh, you know, so long story short, we, we don't see eye to eye on a few things that we would hope to have that we still can't get our hands on. Uh, but they've been responsive. They've been respectful. And I will say that uh, the lead detective in our case, who is now retired, has been incredibly helpful. He and I uh, have sat down and talked about this case at length on several occasions, and uh, his insight has been very, very valuable. Why would there be anybody on the investigative side that wouldn't want to cooperate? You know, I, I think there is, uh, I don't know, it's its tough to speak for law enforcement in this case. They got a lot of uh, heavy criticism, understandably so, because okay. this is a case where you had, uh, you know, two innocent uh, victims additional to your first victim who died, right? You, these two young boys who, who were killed in a case where publicly most people looked at it from the outside and thought, why in the world did uh, our suspect ever have access to those boys in the first place? So there is, I think, some reluctance there in just that they've already taken some punches. They don't want to get uh, beat up uh, unnecessarily beyond that. You know, and we we have to be critical of the police department and, and the investigators and the social workers who were involved in this case just because of the nature of what happened. Now, that's not to say we're out to get anybody, um, but I, I certainly think there is uh, maybe sometimes that reluctance. Once we started, I think, spelling out what we were going to do and the way we were going to approach the story, it brought down some of that reluctance. And I also have the advantage of working for a radio station at KSL that has strong uh, respect in our local community, and I think that also helped them maybe get over some of that reluctance. Absolutely, as well. absolutely. Has Susan's family members, any family members, uh, been helpful or involved, or are they interested? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Susan's dad, Chuck Cox. Uh, he and I have spoken several times. I've visited him in Washington State multiple times, traveling up from Utah. Uh, you know, for I think the rest of the family, it gets hard right? Because they've dealt with reporters and producers from the very beginning on this thing. And, uh, I, I, you know, nine years later to still be doing interviews has, it has to be exhausting for them. It just has to draw up uh, very difficult emotions and memories. And so they've been helpful, but I've also tried to use a very light touch in not hounding them unnecessarily and, uh, hopefully being respectful of the privacy of their family. Uh, you know, there are certain uh, considerations that came into play with this story regarding Susan's journals uh, from her teenage years, which uh, her husband and father-in-law attempted to publish in this case uh, very crudely. And some of that material did end up in my hands. And I made the decision that uh, we were not going to disclose any of that information because I consider it to be you know, her private uh, information. Mm -hmm. So I think as long as, you know, we were having those conversations with the family to express that uh, we were being respectful of, of Susan and, and uh, her privacy in this case, they were willing to uh, work with us. Now, um, you also have some audio of, of uh, the husband, correct? I mean, uh, it yeah. sounds like it sounded creepy. I don't know. Is that real audio from him? Yeah, it is. So we did a couple interesting things with this uh, because we had these tapes of him uh, from 
basically his young adult life uh, through his romancing and early uh, relationship with Susan, it provided a lot of insight about how he thought about her, how he treated her, um, the way he maybe used religion to manipulate her. And it was just incredible to be able to sit back and allow him to tell the story for us. Uh, likewise, his dad, who had a very inappropriate uh, physical attraction to his daughter-in-law, he recorded videotapes where he would sit for an hour and describe uh, all the ways in which he was trying to get close to her. And there again, uh, we were careful about the pieces of tape that we used so that we weren't unnecessarily re-victimizing uh, Susan in this case, but there is power in my mind in hearing, uh, you know, her father-in-law tell her that he loves her and then hearing the way she responded to that. So that tape, when we got our hands on that, uh, there was no way not to use that. Uh, in some other cases we have had to use voiceover actors, uh, to read journal entries. And so I do the best job I can to explicitly call out when we're using real audio and when we are actually using a voice actor. Now, uh, Dave, um, in, in becoming a storyteller like this and keeping the audience engaged, are you, uh, how are you setting it up where you're writing the script and you want to make sure, you know, you're not reading, you know, 12 minutes of script before a cut and then you're playing some music? How are you putting that all together to keep the audience engaged, you know, and involved in the entire podcast? That's a great question. It's something that I still struggle with. Uh, the more I have produced on these episodes, the more I'm realizing I don't want to be the, the, the voice telling you the story. If I right. can find an interview clip, if I can find a piece of tape, uh, I would much prefer to play that and then stand back and allow the listener to, to hear that. So it's been a lot of work. Uh, you know, we've done more than 20, at this point, more than 25 interviews. Uh, many of these were very long form, you know, two, three hour sit down interviews with the newsmakers. All of that gets transcribed uh, and indexed so that I can draw out pieces in telling the story. You know, we're bouncing a lot of different voices, so it can be difficult to track who's speaking. And a lot of my job in telling the story is basically to set up who this person is, what they are, uh, you know, here to tell you, let that sound play, and then just uh, only pop in to provide, you know, a little bit of narrative or context where necessary. Are you doing the editing yourself, and are you using the radio station's facilities to be able to, 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 you know, to edit it down to the point where you're happy with it? Yeah, 100%. Uh, what a great advantage. Um, you know, a lot of people who are jumping into this kind of podcasting are coming from uh, a print journalism background. They're not, you know, radio professionals. I thankfully have been working with my own audio for 15 years. And I'm very comfortable with the software, uh, you know, recording our own interviews on radio professional gear, uh, sitting down with a professional multitrack, being able to use a, a well set up studio space to record my VO. All of this has been helpful um, being a radio guy coming at it, using the facilities here at KSL. Uh, that I, I imagine if you were doing this from your own home in the closet, it, it would be a lot tougher job. Are you happy with the final product when you hear it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. The hesitation. You're, you're always your own worst critic. Um, right. there's not an episode that I've put out where I don't go back and listen to it and go, ah, man, 
you know, I wish I had done this. I wish I'd done that. But of course, uh, we're working on a, on a deadline now that, uh, we're in our, our release window and I'm still writing and producing episodes. Time is very tight and you reach a point where you have to say, you know what, if we don't uh, track this today, it's not going to make release. And so you do the best job that you can. What were your thoughts when you saw how popular it became as soon as it was released? Oh my gosh. Um, day one was insane. I, I've been working on this thing, uh, largely in my free time for the past three or so years. And through that time, I knew I was interested in the story. I didn't know if anyone else would care. Um, thankfully, we have a great advantage at KSL in that we are uh, also owners of a TV station uh, and a top-rated website and a newspaper in this market. It's a very rare occurrence to have all of that. And so uh, KSL, to its credit, put a lot of weight uh, we identified places where we could uh, tell a unique story supporting the podcast on television, how we could write a, a very targeted story for our website, focusing on a piece of the story that would drive people into the podcast. All of that, I believe, really helped with our launch. But to see it do as well as it did on day one, um, I can tell you I was sitting at my desk working on uh, a, another episode and trying not to get too caught up in, you know, download numbers and things when my boss suddenly shouted from her office and clapped her hands and I walked in. And uh, I think at that time we were like number three on the iTunes chart. Um, I had told her at one point that if we ever cracked the top 100, I would consider that, you know, just a huge success. Uh, by the end of the day, we were we were in that number one top spot and we stayed there for a day or so. And, uh, you know, my head started spinning and, and it was all I could do to say, you know what? I can't get caught up in that because I've got to focus on telling this story. So, you know, there's there's that pride in seeing that people are attaching to it and uh, discussing the story and engaging with us on our social media and stuff. But at the end of the day, um, I, I didn't want that to basically, you know, pump me up too much. So set it aside and went back to work. So you have a history of covering the story. It happened uh, in, in your market, in your market area. You have the radio station facilities to work on it. Um, you, you sounds like you have an employer that's, that's allowing you to, uh, to do a special project. What advice do you have for somebody that wants to go out and start a true crime podcast on their own that doesn't have all those things? Man, good luck to you. <laughs> that's... Um, Here's the thing. You know, this podcast for me has been a passion project from day one. I never knew if I would have uh, the ability to to invest as much time in it as I have. Uh, it ended up being a much bigger commitment than I ever expected. Um, but if I had the choice to go back and do it all over again, I would. Uh, certainly, if you are coming at it from a position where you know you don't have all of those advantages, don't let that stop you. If you're passionate about a story. And, uh, you know, you believe that there is good reason for telling that story, go out and do it. Um, I can tell you, Ed, that after we released our first episode, I started getting messages from people who were telling me, thank you so much for doing this podcast because uh, it, it resonates in my own personal life. Either I've had uh, domestic abuse in my past or I have uh, a relative, you know, a sibling uh, a parent, a friend who's gone through domestic abuse. And this this idea that telling our story could have a positive impact in our community 
uh, it, it really rang true. And more than download numbers, more than iTunes rankings, that to me has been uh, the biggest takeaway from this is that telling stories of this scope and scale uh, can positively impact lives. And it doesn't matter if you have, you know, the support of a radio station, a TV station, whatever, because right now people are hungry for these kinds of stories. And if you can find your audience, go out and do it. So have you been able to come to a conclusion that people that were following that story closely like you were will be surprised by? We have learned some new things. Certainly, um, you know, a case like this, the the ultimate goal for investigators was to find Susan's body and uh, to put the person responsible for killing her in prison. We know that uh, the, the person who is responsible, uh, based on all of the available evidence, can never be held accountable because he's dead. And so it raises that uh, other question, where is Susan? Um, I'm not going to step out and tell you that I can find Susan myself. Uh, and I you know, would hope that doing this podcast would provide the impetus to maybe uh, put some fresh eyes on it, to develop some new theories, maybe generate some new leads. Uh, all of that is yet to be seen. Ultimately, I think the goal of my podcast when we finish telling this story is going to be just exactly what I described, to to learn uh, about these warning signs of domestic abuse, to help uh, future victims avoid uh, suffering Susan's fate, and to also identify the places where the, the investigation maybe missed a clue or missed a step, and so that uh, future you know, law enforcement officers who are dealing with uh, a case similar to this can learn from what's, uh, what happened here as well. So, Dave, I look at you like a marathon runner who trains for however many weeks, and then finally the race comes around and you, and you cross the finish line, you know, 26-plus miles a run, and then all of a sudden the race is over. So when this <laughs> is finished, what's going to happen? What are you going to do next? Man, uh, here's the funny thing about doing a story like this. Uh, you dive in on episode one, and people listen to you know one hour of what is going to be a much, much longer process, and they immediately go, hey, cool podcast. What are you doing for season two? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait, 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 wait. Let's get through the first one. Um, we certainly, based on based on the early success of uh, of season one of cold, we have some ideas on, on where to go for season two. Uh, I personally, I'm going to need a, a bit of a break uh, <laughs> living, living in the headspace of, you know, um, trying to understand why somebody was murdered in a heinous way, you know, how their body has never been found, all this, all this stuff, man, it takes a personal toll on you. And, and so I'm hoping to sit on a, you know, on a mountain peak or a beach or something for a, a, at least a weekend, man, get my, get my, uh, legs back under me. And then, you know, maybe identify, a, a, another good story and hopefully dive in and start working on a season two sometime in, in the near future. Dave, thanks so much for the interview. Thank you. Ed. pleasure talking to you.